Welcome to season three of Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward. We started this show about a year ago, and in that time, we have played classic interviews with the likes of David Bowie, Fleetwood Mac, John Lennon, as well as early career interviews with Taylor Swift, Lady Gaga, and even Justin Bieber. The result is an interesting mix of artists at various points in their careers. Joining me now, as always, my co-host and the creator of the show, Mr. Tom Jokic. Hey, Christopher, there are so many great moments on the show from the first two seasons. Some really goofy moments in the studio with Coldplay to an incredibly funny clip. I don't know if you remember this. Karen Carpenter versus a common housefly. That was just hilarious. And if you haven't heard it... <laughs> I love that one. It's near the end of episode 211, which is one of my favorite episodes because that episode has an amazing Rod Stewart interview as well as a chat with Alana Miles. And of course, Alana talks about working with you at great length as a songwriting partner and as kind of her advocate for her career. And once again, you told us an amazing personal story from around that time. So what about you, Christopher? Any highlights from the first two seasons of the show? Well, spoiler alert, um, the fly loses the battle (laughs) with Karen Carpenter. Um, Yes, I I have a a list of favorite moments. Justin Bieber for his youthful enthusiasm. Pete Townsend for his brutal honesty. Um, Kate Bush for her dedication to her work. Tom Jokic for making Mick Jagger laugh. <laughs> Donna Summer for great stories from her early career. Oh, yeah. Jeannie Becker for that reaction. Remember to the Rod Stewart madness? She like was in tears. Herself decades. I know. That was amazing. And our producer, deadhead Adam Karsh, for admitting <laughs> that he likes Miley Cyrus. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, David Lee Roth for his <laughs> mad unpredictability. Yeah. And Tina Turner for her remarkable story and just for being Tina. Oh, those are all excellent. Those are my biggies. Those are all excellent, Christopher. And you know what? You actually won that one. Like like my reminiscences from uh, episode one are fine. Yours are incredible. That's not fair. You you studied. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I just want to straighten something out. Adam, our producer, didn't say that he loves Miley Cyrus. He said that he loves Party in the USA by Miley Cyrus. Yeah, I twisted the truth (laughs) to my own ends. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Is he, he like, getting all beat red and waving his arms in a a provocative motion? (laughs) And and you called him a deadhead, so he could not be any more pleased. So that's, that's great. Oh, okay. So what do we have for the very first show of Season 3? Well, Tom, this week we begin at the top of the heap, with some incredible interview clips with the Beatles. These come from various times in the 60s, and they are all fascinating. We even have John Lennon talking about the Paul is Dead rumors during the time of the Paul is Dead rumors. It's pretty amazing stuff. Sure, and this is very exciting, but it's also a bit dumb, because what are we thinking starting with the Beatles? How can we possibly top that in the next few weeks? We need to speak to the guy who makes these decisions, and that guy, of course, would be me. So never mind. <laughs> yes, exactly. Also, at the <laughs> end of the show, I want to play you an incredible clip of a band that, for a moment, was just as big as the Beatles in terms of the mayhem that they incited in their young fans. Now, in no Was it other- air supply? <laughs> you know what? We're going to talk about air supply next weekend, and we are going to fight. <laughs> I can't believe I'm defending Air Supply. Okay, hang on. Just hold that thought. Now, in no other way can the band that I'm talking about, and no, it's not Air Supply, can they be compared to the Beatles. But for a few weeks and months in the mid-'70s, you could not touch the Bay City Rollers in terms of pure Ah. teen girl idolatry. 
And I want to play a clip for you that illustrates the utter madness that the Rollers created. It's a real-time moment of the band in a Canadian city that is both very funny and very scary. Not the city, the moment. You've just got to hear this, so stick around. Okay, but let's get started right now with the Beatles. One, two, three, five! Tom, just when you think Beatlemania might be a spent force almost 55 years after it began, Paul McCartney has his first solo number one album with Egypt Station. Which, by the way, he worked his 76-year-old butt off to promote. (laughs) He sure did. And if you are one of the four people on the planet who hasn't seen Paul's episode of Carpool Karaoke with James Corden, it is required viewing. It is fab and so entertaining and and, and kind of emotional, too. Um, And then there are the deluxe reissues of early solo McCartney albums Wild Life, Red Rose Speedway, and Wings 71 to 73. Mm -hmm. To top it all off... The super deluxe reissue of a 50th anniversary remixed white album featuring not only the usual outtakes and alternate versions of things, but also including those early acoustic demos of the songs that they recorded at George's house, the so-called Escher demos that have long been bootlegged but never officially available. So what we have here is a potpourri of interview bits, individually with Paul, George, and John, as Tom said, at different times, but all late in the career of the band. Let's start with Paul. It sounds like this first clip is from a press conference where he defends the band against the bigots. They're entitled to their opinion. I think the thing about that is that um, there are more people in America, so there are more bigots, you know, just by head of population. Yeah, well, there are, you know, just, well, you know, but I mean, you hear more from American bigots than you do from Russian bigots. Oh, man, isn't that funny? It's it's just so plain to him that he says, <laughs> you know, there's more bigots in America, so that's why you're going to hear and witness more bigotry. And it's such a plain-spoken way that he said it that it actually catches the people at, at this press conference. I assume it's a press conference because of the way you hear everybody laugh. It is so direct that it's very funny. It's almost shocking in the way he says it. It's very matter-of-fact. But then he goes on to say that there are more people in America. So, I mean, it's right. he sort of backs off it a, a touch, I guess. All right, so this, uh, this is the obscure part of the program. Um, for those that don't pay attention to the parts that make up a song, the British version of what elsewhere is called the bridge of the song is known as the middle eight. Literally eight bars of music that occur usually near the middle of the song. Think the life is very short and there's no time section of We Can Work It Out. Oh, okay. Or the, uh, yeah, or, well, my heart went boom, right when I crossed that room section of I saw her standing there, right? Mm -hmm. Both of which actually, kind of breaking the mold, occur twice in the song. Hmm. But how about the I don't want to sound complaining, but you know, right, from Please Please Me? Right. That only happens once. That's a classic bridge. All so right? that's the bridge. So when uh, James Brown yells out, take it to the bridge, then that's the part of the song he's talking about. <laughs> that is exactly the part of the song he's taking. That was a good James, by the Thank way. You. <laughs> you know, he used to find his band members on stage. He would do it in context. He would, he would turn around and go, 25, which meant you were just fined 25 bucks for missing a note or something. I've heard that. Yeah. Um, So in this section dealing with middle eights, Paul talks about writing them with John. We normally do, though, even if I go away and write a song. Normally the reason I write it is on my own or John writes it on his own. It's because it's daft just sitting around waiting for the other one to come up and finish the song off. If you happen to be on your own, you might as well finish it off yourself, you know, because we don't have words and music, as you well know. Uh, but so what normally does happen is that uh, 
if I get stuck on the middle eight or uh, the, the middle bit of a song, I'll give in, you know, mm. knowing that John will, when, when I see him, he'll sort of finish it off for me and it'll be a 50-50 thing. That's what happens with a lot of them. That's what did happen with, even with a lot of the single efforts. I just sort of forget about a middle eight until I see John, then say, I need a middle eight for this one. And he sort of says, right, okay, let's do one now. That's fascinating. You know, we've always heard about how Lennon and McCartney are the greatest songwriting duo of all time, and I'm certainly not about to argue that case. And it's just neat to see their process or hear about their process and how Paul would get stuck, and that's what led to the collaboration in many cases. That's great stuff. And actually, aside from writing bridges to a number of those songs of Paul's, John had another contribution to make to I Saw Her Standing There. Actually, what happened was he took out one word, which, which would have made it very wrong. The first two lines, I, I, I did it going home in a car one night, and so I wasn't really thinking too much about it. The first two lines originally were, she was just 17, and she'd never been a beauty queen which sort of just sounded like it rhymed to me. Anyway, when I saw it the next day and played it through to John, I realized that it was a useless line, you know. So we just sat down and tried to think of another line which rhymed with 17 and meant something. We eventually got, you know what I mean, which means nothing. Means completely nothing at all. <laughs> you know what's like funny? One? She was just seventeen. You know what I mean? Is both meaningless and implies a deeper meaning, perhaps a not very nice meaning, and yet it was better than she was just seventeen, never been much of a beauty queen. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. That's great. Well, the aforementioned Paul is Dead rumor Mm -hmm. from 1969 was in full force at the time of this interview with John Lennon, and he addressed it, as usual, dismissively. Uh, No, it's a joke, isn't it? I mean, Paul isn't dead, you know, and if he was, we would have told you, you know. We'd be the first to know. I can't understand it because I can understand the James Dean kind of, he still lives, crippled, but won't come out, you know. I mean, there's some kind of idea you could guess well maybe maybe but paul mccartney couldn't die without the world knowing it the same as he couldn't get married without the world knowing it. it's impossible he can't go on holiday without the world knowing how how could he die without everybody knowing it yeah you can tell the beatles are just kind of rolling their eyes at it john is answering very matter-of-factly there but you kind of wish he would say like seriously you people need to get a life if you think this is true but there, there's a little bit of that, I think, in this next clip where he kind of runs down all the clues from Abbey Road, which is funny because he knows them all. Well, Beatle obsessives, now and then, found significance in even the tiniest details. Here, John talks about shooting the cover for Abbey Road. First time I've ever heard of it, you know. I mean, so what? I mean, Paul walked barefoot across the road uh, because Paul's idea of being different is to look almost straight but just have his ear painted blue, you know, something a little subtle. He liked to go when we did press conferences. We all were a bit like that. We used to go on stage with just, say, one polythene bag on one foot. And nobody might notice it, just us would be laughing. So for Paul, he decided to be barefoot that day, walking across the road. But when you first glance at the album, it looks like the four Beatles or whoever walking across fully dressed. But he just, that's his little gimmick, that's all. Yeah, I didn't even notice till I got the album. I didn't notice on the day he was barefoot. We were just uh, wishing the photographer would hurry up and it's getting too pe- many people are hanging around. It's going to spoil the shot and let's get out of here. We're meant to be recording, not posing for fetal pictures, you know. That's all we were thinking. And I was muttering, come on, hurry up now, keep in step. 
and all that, you know. And as he said, I was wearing a white religious suit, you know. But, I mean, did Humphrey Bogart wear a white religious suit? All I've got is a nice Humphrey Bogart suit, you know. What's religious about? They said George was dressed as an undertaker and rubbish. And Ringo or something. I, you know, it's just insanity, but it's great plug for Abbey Road. <laughs> Well, he just wants to get it done and get back to work, right? That's right. That's right. Keep it moving across the street, boys. I want to get, you know, I want to get back <laughs> in the studio. And also, they're starting to draw a crowd. They don't know, you know, what's going to happen if a big crowd starts to gather around and all that. I think I may have told you this story before, but the, I think that the most chilling Paul is dead clue comes at the end of Strawberry Fields, where John says, he says, he says, cranberry sauce, but it sounds like, oh, I buried Paul, right? That, that whole thing. And I... <laughs> I played that to my son many years ago. Now, my son is 21 years old now, but I played for him probably yeah. when he was seven or eight. And I got to tell you, it scared the pudding out of the kid, right? It was, it was, oh, it was, scared the cranberry out of him. Dude. It scared the cranberry sauce out of him. And he would not listen to that song for years, even though he knew the White Album back and forth by the time he was like 14. He would never listen to Strawberry Fields. So, Tom, in these next segments, George Harrison talks in great detail about the very earliest days of the band, their struggle to get a record deal, and their first recording sessions. Because you can see on the first album we made, it was still, there was a lot of original tunes, but there was still, um, you know, we were doing some of those tunes like uh, Twist and Shout and Money and a lot of things which we did regular on stage. So... The main point about the original songs is when we finally got the record contract, which was not very easy. We were turned down by most of the record companies. But when we finally got it, George Martin still wanted us to record a song that some other guy had written. You know, they gave us this song and said, now go away and learn this and this is going to be your record. So we did, we arranged it and went down and we recorded it and then said but we'd still rather do our own tunes so because we insisted then we we cut uh, I think Love Me Do and Please Please Me and they gave that song to Jerry Marsden who was you know which was um, what is it called well Jerry Marsden's first single anyway was the one that we decided not to do it. I like it. Um, yeah. I like it. Or, yeah, I like it. it. How do you do it? Right. That's it. Okay, here's George with a great and not often told story of how Ringo became a Beatle. I mean, that was something which, in the first place, when we got the very original um, engagement in Hamburg, for some reason the guy who was booking us there said that he wants a five-piece band. So there was John Paul and I all played guitars, and then Stuart, who was playing bass, and then we used to have these drummers who'd turn up for two days, and then we'd never see them again. And then we'd get another one. And it ended up that there was... We almost had a kit of drums from bits and pieces they left. So when we were doing this strip club gig, Paul started playing the drums. So we were four, but then right after that, we got this job where they said, you've got to have five. So I just remembered the drummer... I remember this guy, Pete, who'd, uh, I knew he'd got a set of drums for Christmas, so we phoned him up, got him down, and we just played 
through two tunes and he just went said okay tomorrow we're going to hamburg so he, we just went out there so he was with us for a while and at that time in hamburg the band that followed us out rory storm and the hurricanes ringo was the drummer and so f- for the following couple of uh maybe two years every time pete best was sick we'd always get ringo in and play and it was one of those things every time we weren't playing Pete would never sort of be hanging out with us. It was always just John Paul and I. And Pete, every time he was sick, we'd get Ringo, and it just seemed so much better. I don't know. It was one of them things that some people thought it was unfair, but in retrospect, it was as if we were ready to go somewhere, but it was there was one leg missing, you know? Because the moment Ringo, we made that decision, then, you know, everything felt right. So it came down to the playing... But it also, tellingly, came down to the hanging out. Absolutely. You know, they're, they're in Hamburg, Germany. They're in Liverpool. They're at the Cavern Club. They're all over the place. And you can tell that they really became a thing. And they became a band of brothers in many regards during that time. And if Pete's not hanging out with them, you can see that that would have an effect. But also, you can hear George talking about when Ringo joined in, it just changed the band and there was something about it that made that band fly. And again, you and I can do a whole hour show sometime on the value and the brilliance of Ringo Starr as a drummer, despite the many naysayers in this world. I like to sit in front of the telly and go bang, bang. (laughs) (laughs) I love Ringo. Yeah. The contribution of manager Brian Epstein has always been a big part of the Beatles' success, and George adds to that story. I'll just give you a quick thing on Brian, because he was managing his father's, you know, one of his father's um, stores. They were originally in the furniture business, but he decided to open a record department, and if it hadn't been for his attitude in the record business which was actually that he thought he should have at least one copy of everything. So when that guy came and asked for my Bonnie and he found he didn't have it, he ordered it. So he thought, well, if one person wants it, there's maybe a hundred people. So he ordered a hundred copies. And because he shifted those, he sold those. So when he went down originally to try and get his contracts, we made a demo for Decker and we took that to Pi. Everybody turned us down. EMI turned us down too. And this was over a period of time, and Brian was being really bugged by his parents because, you know, they were saying, what are you doing hanging around with these teddy boys or whatever, scruffs, and neglecting the business? And it was getting to the point where he'd extended himself away from his father's business long enough that, you know, it was at the point where he was going to have to give in. But while he was in London, some guy said... He went in HMV store in Oxford Street, which is a real big store, and the guy said, go and see George Martin, who was at that time a staff producer. So he was just on a salary for EMI, who had a lot of different labels. So he was working on more like comedy albums, like Peter Sellers and Bernard Cribbins. So it was George Martin who decided to stick his neck out, even though EMI, basically from the top level, decided they didn't want us. So the first record we did, Love Me Do, by a stroke of luck, came in, we got to 17 in the top 20. So it more or less 
made everything okay. This is Famous Lost Words as we kick off our third season in style by talking about the Beatles. Remember, you can get caught up on past episodes on the iHeartRadio app and on Apple Podcasts, a.k.a. iTunes. Just want to let you know that we have a very special all-80s edition of Famous Lost Words next week. Everyone from Duran Duran to OMD to the Bengals to Toto to Martha and the Muffins even air supply, much to Christopher's chagrin. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Famous Lost Words, and on Twitter at Famous Lost Pod. And let us know which artists you'd like to hear from. I heard from a listener just this week who wants to hear from George Michael and Ricky Martin. And I'm thrilled to say we have extensive interviews with both of them. Also coming soon, The Rolling Stones, Tina Turner, Bon Jovi, Led Zeppelin, and ACDC. But now, let's continue with The Beatles. <laughs> It's been a hard day's night And I've been working like a dog So here George talks about some of their earliest performances on concert stages. I'm not sure if it was... It must have been Please Please Me, which was our second single. And we had an album out, and that was the single. And we were booked on a tour of England, which was then the first decent tour. That is, we played um, theatres. And we were the opening act on the Helen Shapiro show. And Helen Shapiro was like a schoolgirl singer who had a lot of hits, like sort of English Brenda Lee. But she'd already peaked and was, even though she was a big name, she hadn't had a few hits for a while. And it was a real embarrassing because we were, I suppose, pulling a lot of people to the show, but we were the opening act. And as soon as that... uh, tour ended they put us on another tour as second top of the bill but I think that tour had uh, Tommy Rowe he just had that Sheila record and Chris Montez so it was supposed to be something like Chris Montez closed the show Tommy Rowe closed the first half and we opened the second half or something and after the very opening first house of the first night because we went you know at that point it was really taking off in England the Beatles stuff they wanted to shift it so that we'd close the show or close the first half and there was all this politics going on with Chris Montez and Tommy Rose managers anyway whatever they worked out we closed the first half or something then we did another tour straight away after that where we were top with Roy Orbison and Roy Orbison did the spot right before us and then we had to close and uh, Roy Orbison incidentally would just kill everybody he was the hardest person ever to follow you know that's even when it was Beatlemania wow isn't that great stuff the bigger they became the more daunting they became as an opening act for some of these quote-unquote bigger bands. And then as they got bigger, they're moved down the playlist so that uh, they'll close the show. And then Roy Orbison, the big O, comes to town and blows everybody away, including the Beatles. That's great, great music history right there. A lot of respect for the big O. Mm-hmm. So you know that quirky Liverpudlian wit that we always refer to? Well, it served the band very well. Because I think that was one of the important things as well as how we looked and how we dressed and how the songs were was how we conducted ourselves with the press because remember that first press conference was a big success mainly because I don't think 
you know, up until that time, people were used to interviewing people and they'd say, oh, yes, I drink milk and I go to bed at 10 o'clock, you know, that clean cut. And suddenly, with four of us just being... I mean, in a way, we were very innocent. And, yeah, and I think that was a success because they, they'd never experienced sort of people just being so straightforward or comical or whatever. And that was always the advantage of the Beatles because of four people, all who were potential comedians as well. I mean, there was always somebody who could keep it going, you know? Honestly, I think that's a great clip right there because they're talking about how everyone was answering and being asked questions like, what kind of milk do you drink? And, and the answer was usually white, <laughs> right? And when they came along, they were not just a breath of fresh air. They were like a hurricane of personality. And of course, it was at a time when America needed it the most after the assassination of JFK. And so the country was left one wanting with something to, that they could be hopeful and happy about. And the Beatles brought that when they brought that to New York in 1964. Um, but just his description of what they brought is, is really interesting and pretty self-aware, I think. My favorite Georgism is when they ask him, what do you, what do you call your haircut? Mm-hmm. And he says, Arthur. <laughs> George was the one who had, if not the most cynical take, let's say at least the most realistic take of what was actually going on yes. at the height of Beatlemania. Mm-hmm. I mean, here, um, he defines it as something that was out of their control, and he explains how they channeled their own nervous energy. Everything was going at such a pace in those days, you know? It was like so... It was... I mean, even now, having gone through all that and being much more able to deal with situations... It would still be um, heavy, you know, but at that point we were just probably out on, you know, just out there, you know. I don't think we were walking on the ground, really. People were coming left, right and centre, everything was happening, sending flowers in, telegrams from, you know, Elvis and, you know, it was just, it was too much to take in, you know, and plus we were nervous wrecks, really. You know, part of the Beatles thing was nervous energy. When we got to America, we were just sort of pushed into this madhouse. And I think once the Beatlemania, a lot of the Beatlemania was, uh, I'm not sure for what reason, maybe, uh, you know, obviously people wanted to get off on something new, and it was us that they got off on. But there was a lot of mania, which was actually nothing to do with us. A lot of the time we'd just be stuck in a hotel room and in the city we would be, there'd be all these things going on which we didn't know about. Like, And they put it down to Beatlemania. In fact, we used to watch the cops, you know, the police used to get into Beatlemania. They'd go ahead of the limo on the Harley Davidsons and they'd just be, you know, shh, driving along with no hands and falling off the motorbikes and, you know, all kinds. It's like... Everybody just went mad. Thoughtful stuff, huh? That's just great stuff. And, you know, we spoke uh, to George Harrison just a few weeks ago with your late 80s interview with him uh, from the Much Days, and that was an excellent interview, and there's so much more with George Harrison. Christopher, i got to tell you, I've got George Harrison doing a track-by-track breakdown just of the Abbey Road album, and it's excellent. You do? I absolutely You've been holding <laughs> out on me for two seasons? <laughs> Shouldn't we wrap up this segment with a wacky Phil Spector anecdote? Oh, please, no. Okay, let's roll it. Uh, one 
thing I remember seeing as you were talking about the plane trip was that Phil Spector, in that period we met Phil Spector and the Ronettes and all them in England. And I remember Phil was so paranoid about flying that he cancelled his flight until our flight and booked on the same flight as us because he thought that we were winners and so he wouldn't crash. He thought there was no <laughs> way the Beatles plane would crash. Oh, oh, Phil. Great stuff. The Beatles. John, Paul, George, and Ringo with a little bit of extra George at the end there on Famous Lost Words. Okay, Christopher, I want to take you back to utter mayhem. June 27th, 1976. It is Bay City Rollers Day in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Oh, man. And this audio, when I heard this, in the, it, the original audio is about 14 minutes long. Ah. It is utter mayhem. And I was almost screaming in the car along with the girls <laughs> in this audio, in this clip. I love that you're allowing allowing us to know that about <laughs> you, you know? And... Uh, because because it was just such chaos and such mayhem, so we're only going to play about uh, about a minute and a half, two and a half minutes of this of this audio. So it is Bay City Rollers Day at Nathan Phillips Square, which is City Hall in Toronto, and the DJs who are hosting the event are trying to keep the young girls back from the stage as the Bay City Rollers are going to be on stage and they're not even performing that day. Oh, and there's, there's, what are they doing? They are only receiving gold records for oh, their albums, okay. right? And so it's a, it's a big day, and we've been promoting this event, you know, for a couple of weeks on the air, and tens of thousands of Bay City Rollers fans show up at City Hall. And they, it's not even a concert. They overrun City Hall just to see them on the stage. They're they're all they really are going to do. The only thing they've they've kind of promised is to go out on stage, receive the record, wave to the fans, maybe say a few words. But man, oh man, listen to how it works out. It's both hilarious and a little frightening at times. Okay, but it's really interesting. Let's have a listen. <laughs> And uh, the crowd, of course, is yelling, we want the rollers. He just rose to a fever pitch a few seconds ago when the rollers walked in from the backstage. They were uh, under police protection. And uh, Terry Steele is about ready to introduce him to the crowd here at Nathan Phillips Square. Thank you, John. Ladies and gentlemen, a Toronto welcome for the Bay City Rollers! The rollers are walking on stage and waving at everybody now. A crowd of 35,000 waving pieces of tartan at the rollers. I can't see the rollers from where I am. I'm backstage. Terry's talking to the crowd. The crowd very well behaved. Everybody move back. Now, who's talking? It's not the MC talking. It's a policeman. Okay. Here's the police. I kid you not, if you just don't keep quiet and climb down, you won't see them again. The MC asked you to promise. To keep cool and calm, and you broke it. If you want to see them again, you're going to have to back up, and everybody keep quiet. I kid you not. Look, just to give me an example, harsh and serious are. Everybody keep quiet for five seconds. Just, just an example of your sincerity. Everyone quiet for five seconds. Now that's good. If you can stay that way and don't move, they'll be out. And we'll keep them here longer so you can enjoy them better, maybe. But please, 
Don't move. Okay? Hands up for everyone who's going to stay in their same spot. That's good. That's why Toronto's a good city. Okay, it's your day. Terry's trying to keep now, them together. Do you think that we can bring the rollers out again? Let's hope so. Will everybody relax? Promise me, please. Because we, we at Chum have been looking forward to this day for two weeks just like you, all right, since we arranged it. The rollers okay. are behind a little now, partition here, so they can't be seen by the crowd again. right now, and Terry's going to try to bring them out again. Want, but stay where you are. Scream your heads up, but stay right where you are. The Bay City Rollers, ladies and gentlemen. They're coming back. There's... Oh, I can't even see them from here. They're all waving again. On my side is... Uh, there's Woody and there's Derek Longmuir, Ian Mitchell in the center. All right. Les McEwen. Let's get on with the presentation. And way over in the far end. Remember, if we have to take the rollers off the stage again, that will be it. All lined up in front of a cheering crowd of 35,000 people. There's a teddy bear right up front. Somebody waving a tartan-clad teddy bear at the rollers. They're all smiling. Terry Steele's trying to get the crowd together. I'm only about so, uh, 10 feet away from the crowd right now. If and everybody just relaxes, we'll get on with the presentation. The excitement is just too much. Oh, that is <laughs> unbelievable. I know. So what? clarify for me, what actually took place? They went on stage once, but then they had to be taken off. Then they came back. Did they stay for very long? Did they I talk don't to believe, the audience? Honestly, I don't believe they, they were able to take a mic and talk to the audience. I have about 14 minutes of that audio, and they never are able to say anything as far as I can tell they just as wave. far as i heard they just wave but the problem is as the audience surged a couple of times and oh, we know yeah. what can happen That's so when risky you it is when you have an audience surge and the people at the front really feel that and they and they can get hurt and or even worse and so you can tell that the the law enforcement official the police officer who is just doing his so darndest. clueless <laughs> I but, mean, it's forty years ago, yes. but still, like no, no crowd control no, training. Yeah. No, he was he was basically into scolding kids instead yeah. of trying to talk. Be to quiet them. for five seconds. For, for five seconds, Ra- and I stay the, that way. Raise your hands if you can be quiet for five seconds. <laughs> right, and really? stay that way. He wants the crowd to remain quiet while the Bay City Rollers are on. Okay, but anyway, mm. you know, he was doing his best to kind of keep everybody safe, and his ability to handle that is, of course, is of course a little bit amusing. Um, and then, of course, there's the announcers trying to trying to kind of keep control of the situation too. So I'm playing that just as an indication of the rabid attention of their fans and just how absolute craze they were about the Bay City Rollers. You forget over the years sometimes. I mean, we all talk about Beatlemania as being mm-hmm. sort of a, a peak of audience fever. But maybe the Rollers were next. Maybe New Kids on the Block were next. And Bieber, you know, people like that. Sure. I mean, they just seem to tap into something in their fans. Yeah. It's a moment in time for the fans when they're they're just feeling this incredible release that the music provides for them. Sure. And you get a scene like that. Absolutely. And, you know, it helps. Catchy songs, cute guys. Seriously, what else do you need? And you can, and you can take off. <laughs> that's, that's, that's success in I'm a nutshell. I'm going to remember that. <laughs> You're listening to Famous Lost Words, Season 3, Episode 1. My partner Tom has 
some cool song facts. That's right, Christopher. And you can follow me, not you, Christopher, but our listeners can follow me on Twitter at Cool Song Facts. Okay, first cool song fact, because it's the first episode of the new year, let's talk about the old year. Drake was the king of Spotify, the platform's most streamed artist of 2018, with more than 8.2 billion streams, okay? And he also has the most streamed album with Scorpion, and song with God's plan. So he is also the most streamed artist of all time on Spotify. That is really quite an achievement for Drake. That's remarkable. Now, because we started this show with the Beatles, let me give you just two or three Beatles cool song facts. First of all, John Lennon said he wanted the final note in A Day in the Life to sound like the end of the world. That note was played by five people on three pianos. All right, so that's cool. There's a cool song fact for you. Now, Come Together was the very last song that all four Beatles recorded together in the studio. Isn't that that interesting? That's ironic. (laughs) It sure is. Um, The Guess Who in 1970 sold more singles than anyone else in the world, including the Beatles. And that year, they also sold more records than every other Canadian band and artist combined. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Okay, let's talk about the first single to sell a million downloads legally online, and that was Hollaback Girl by Gwen Stefani. That's kind of a cool, fun fact because because it was around the time when illegal downloads were a huge thing, and that song finally made a dent in that market to a great extent. Go Gwen. More cool song facts. Mick Jagger says that Satanic Majesty's Request, that album, was recorded when the group was, quote, doing way too much acid, end quote, and he likes two of the songs, <laughs> but the rest are nonsense, in his words. Wow. <laughs> we, I'm curious to know which ones he likes. Yeah, no kidding. Um, let's hope it's not She's a Rainbow. She's a, she's a Rainbow? Oh, man. I know you like that song. I do not. Yeah, I love that song. <laughs> okay. Terry Jacks wrote the song Seasons in the Sun for the Beach Boys. We already know about that because we heard him tell us that story. But they chose not to release it, so he decided to record it himself. Another cool song fact, which I think I already talked about last year, was that the very first single Kurt Cobain ever bought was Seasons in the Sun by Terry Jacks. So that's a weird one. (laughs) No kidding. Okay, let's talk about the song Billie Jean by Michael Jackson. There were 91 different studio takes of that song recorded. Which take do you think they chose? Number one? No, but you're awfully close. They chose take number two. Unbelievable. Wow. Well, they chose well. That's all I can say. (laughs) Okay, and the last cool song fact for today. Six years after it was a hit in Canada... The song When I'm With You by Sheriff went to number one in the States in 1989. So it was a hit, and it was a big hit in Canada in 1983, but it took six years for it to go to number one in the United States, and by then, the band had been broken up for four years. That is such a great story. That was Season 3, Episode 1, Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic, and thank you to our producer, Adam Karsh. Thank you, Adam. 
And don't forget, you can follow us on Facebook at Famous Lost Words and on Twitter at Famous Lost Pod. Talk to you next week. We have a very special episode. It's all about the 80s. 